Good morning. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, starting at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dave. If you'd like to follow along with the passage, you can do that in the news sheet, and there's also an outline there. Let me pray, though, as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Mark's gospel. God, please speak to us now powerfully as we reflect on your word. Help each one of us to see Jesus clearly. Amen. When I read this passage a few weeks ago, I had two main responses. My first response was that this passage really confirms some of what we've already seen in Mark as we've been reading through. My second response was that I had a bunch of questions that this passage raised for me. 
Firstly, though, we see again here in this passage some of what we've already seen in Mark. We see the power of Jesus over demons as he frees the little girl of the demon that possessed her. We see Jesus' power to heal the sick and the disabled as he opens the man's ears, as he loosens his tongue and enables him to speak plainly. The spotlight of our series on Mark has been clear, uh, sharply on who Jesus is. We heard Mark introduce Jesus boldly in the very first sentence of his book as the Messiah, the Son of God. We've seen Jesus healing people. We've seen him driving out demons. We've seen him calming storms. We've heard him declaring forgiveness of sins. Last week, we heard about him feeding a crowd of more than 5,000 people, walking on water, teaching as one who had authority. But despite the clarity of how Mark presents Jesus as a man with power and authority. The question about his identity still simmers here in Mark chapter seven. For me, reading Mark's gospel is a bit like going to an optometrist. Some of you may never have been, so let me fill you in on what it's like. I've been going to the optometrist since I was 10 years old on a regular basis. Even if you haven't had your eyes checked, you'll have seen eye charts around, a little bit like this one, although probably not quite like this one. The very first time I went to the optometrist, I couldn't read the top letter on the eye chart. They freaked out a little bit. I just thought it was normal that everything was fuzzy most of the time. Uh, you'll be pleased to know I can see fine now as long as I have my glasses on and my contact lenses in. But the point of an eye check is to test what you can see and what you can't see, to work out what prescription of glasses you need. So the optometrist goes through a process of trying different lenses and testing your eyes with the chart to see what you can read. What they want to do is maximise your vision to help you to see clearly. To refine it as much as possible, you get to this stage where they try one of two lenses in front of your eyes and they keep trying lenses in pairs. So what they do is they hold a lens in front of your eye and say one, then they put another one or two. One or two, which is better? One or two, over and over and over. Sometimes the difference is really minimal. But each time as I answer, this one's better, it sharpens up my vision a tiny little bit, bit by bit by bit so that I can have the sharpest vision possible. And that's also what Mark wants, for us to finish reading Mark's gospel with the sharpest vision possible of Jesus. Mark wants us to see Jesus absolutely clearly. Asking questions as we meet Jesus is part of that process. It helps us to sharpen our focus on Jesus. And seeing Jesus clearly helps us to see everything else clearly as well. So as we look at this passage today, seeing Jesus clearly will help us in seeing the nations clearly. It will help us in seeing the battle clearly. And along the way this morning, we'll ask some of the questions that I think this passage raises. So first of all, seeing the nations clearly. Last week we heard about Jesus miraculously feeding that crowd of more than 5,000 people. We heard about him walking on water across the Sea of Galilee as his disciples crossed in a boat. 
the boat landed at a place called Gennesaret in Galilee, which you can hopefully see on the map there down near the lake, the sea. While Jesus was in Galilee, just before what we've had read for us this morning, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus a really pointed question. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? This was a big deal for them. Jesus' answer turns the conversation inside out, pun intended. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. So with that context, we come in verse 24 to Jesus' arrival in Tyre, which again, you can see on the map. It's on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea in the region of Phoenicia. This is in modern-day Lebanon. Tyre was a decidedly Gentile town. It was outside of Galilee and Judea, which is where Jesus spent most of his time. The Jews of Jesus' day categorised people as one of two things, a Jew or a Gentile, that is, not a Jew. Their ceremonial washing rules were a way of maintaining a protective fence around their Jewish identity. So the rules meant that they couldn't eat with people who were Gentiles. So it's really intriguing that Jesus now enters this Gentile town, that he meets this Greek woman, this Gentile woman who was born in Syrian Phoenicia. Mark includes all this detail so we get the picture. This is not a Jewish woman. This is not a Jewish town. The woman begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, not an unusual request for Jesus to hear, although more unusual on the lips of a Gentile woman. But Jesus' reply is unusual, as is their whole conversation, really. Listen again to what he says in verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus uses this contrast of children and dogs. The children are the Jews, and it sounds really harsh to our ears, doesn't it? The woman and her daughter, he calls dogs. This was actually a really common Jewish way of referring to Gentiles. Gentiles were just as uncomplimentary to Jews. We can probably think of groups of people who refer to each other in uncomplimentary ways today as well. But why does Jesus talk like this to the woman? He's making a point, a really important one, as we'll see. The truth is, Jesus was on a mission, and this was a detour. Jesus' mission was to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the Jews, to call them to repent and believe that good news, to inaugurate the kingdom of God in his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus says that the children, the Jews, should eat all they want. But why the Jews? It really all goes back to Abraham. After the disaster of human disbelief, disrespect and disobedience towards God in Eden in the fall, after the disaster of human pride and independence of God in Babel as they built that tower, God starts again with Abraham. 
He promises to make Abraham into a great nation and he promises that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Andy Judd had a really lovely way of putting this at Deuteronomy in one night. What we see in these promises is that Abraham's family is the pilot light for the world. Israel is designed to be the pilot light from which the whole world will be brought to worship God. And here in Jesus' life, we're right at the moment where the pilot light is about to ignite the whole burner. Jesus was finishing up the work of bringing the news of the kingdom to the Jews, to Abraham's family. That's why he spends most of his time in Jewish territory. That's why he made this really confronting statement to the woman. But she takes this apparent insult and she turns it around on Jesus. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus acknowledges her faith in him. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Here we see a little hint of the future, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the present. We see that the kingdom of God is for the nations in this woman's faith. We see it in her child lying on her bed with the demon gone. We see it in Jesus healing the deaf and mute man in the Decapolis, another Gentile area. N.T. Wright puts it really well, I think. What Jesus did here was seen by the disciples and written up by Mark as a sign that he had meant what he'd said about cleanness and uncleanness. The old barriers, the old taboos were being swept away. The dogs under the table were already sharing the children's bread. Pretty soon they would cease to be dogs and become children alongside the others. We shouldn't be surprised by this because the kingdom of God was never just for the Jews. It was always meant for the nations through Israel as we saw in God's promises to Abraham. And there are other hints in the Old Testament as well that God was for the nations. Think of the Gentile women, Rahab and Ruth, who became followers of God as they joined Israel. Think of Jonah, sent by God to the wicked Gentile city of Nineveh. Jonah was so reluctant, but God made sure that he got there. That the kingdom of God is for all the nations becomes clearer and clearer after Jesus' death. The first person that Mark records responding to Jesus' death isn't a Jew. It's a Roman centurion. Surely this man was the son of God, he says, standing next to Jesus, dead on the cross. In Matthew 28 and in Acts 1, the mission of the disciples is really clear. Go and make disciples of all nations. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans and Galatians. And in Revelation, we hear multiple times God's people being described as from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And there's really beautiful words in Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel, writes John, flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is great news 
for most of us, most of us who are Gentiles. Here in Mark 7, we see a foretaste of this global truth. The eternal gospel is for all nations. It's for every nation, for every person, for all people. This is a beautiful thing about who God is. His message of love and salvation is Christ, is for everyone. Many of us know this intellectually, but how real is it in our lives? I'm so thankful to God for people from so many nations who gather here together in our family at St. Jude's. I'd love to see more and more people join us from more and more nations around the world. And I'd love to be better at acknowledging the many different cultural backgrounds that we have here in our community at St. Jude's. I'd love to be better at learning from each other. So let me know if you have ideas about how we can do that. I'd also love us to grow in our commitment to supporting our global mission partners. They are in the front line in many nations around the world. If the gospel is for the nations, our commitment to our global mission partners, our prayers for them are essential. I'd love us to con consider our own commitment to uh, sharing the gospel with people from different nations, whether that's here in Melbourne, whether that might be going to live and serve somewhere else. Might God be calling one of us to go and live as Jesus' follower somewhere else? Do we see the nations clearly? Jesus is for the nations, each and every one. As well as, as, well as helping us to see the nations clearly, this passage also helps us to see the battle clearly. We see it in the little daughter of the Greek woman, the little girl who was possessed by an impure spirit, by a demon. We see it in the power of Jesus. Jesus speaks from afar and the demon leaves the little girl. This scene is a skirmish in a much larger battle, a battle between Jesus and Satan, a battle that we see if we take a bird's eye view of Mark's gospel. This raises lots of questions for us, I think. Questions around demon possession, questions around the work of Satan, questions around the supernatural. I'll give us a framework now, but there's lots more that we could talk about. So please come and chat with me later if you'd like to, if you have questions or if you'd like to know more. Peter Adam has done much more thinking and writing on this than I have, so he'd be really happy to chat with you as well. And Graham Cole has written this really helpful book, Against the Darkness, which is another great resource. But for now, let's have a, a brief skim over Mark's gospel. In Mark 1, we met Jesus at his baptism. It included this, it included this dramatic declaration of Jesus' identity, a voice from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What was the first thing that Jesus did after that? In the next verse, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Jesus' ministry begins with a battle against Satan. And that battle continues throughout Mark. We see it at another really key moment. It follows another high point, Peter's declaration in Mark 8 that we'll get to next week. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. 
right away. Jesus went on to teach his disciples what that meant, that he would suffer, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed, that he would rise on the third day. And in response to hearing that, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. What a confronting thing to hear. Get behind me, Satan, he said. That's the battle that we're to see clearly. Some of you might have heard about this thing happening on social media, the Roman Empire question. Uh, It was started by a guy on Instagram called uh, Gaius Flavius, a Roman reenactor. He posts historical content and he posted this in August. Ladies, many of you do not realize how often men think about the Roman Empire. Ask your husband, boyfriend, father, brother, you'll be surprised by their answers. I don't know if anyone's asked the men in their life this question. Apparently, lots of women asked lots of men and posted the videos online. Lots of blokes said, of course, we think about the Roman Empire three times a week. Uh, We think about togas. Who would have known this? Uh, Apparently, lots of women said, we really don't think about the Roman Empire that much at all. I think Christians can be a bit like this with the spiritual battle between Jesus and Satan. Some Christians and churches maybe think about it way too much. They become really fixated on this. But other Christians and other churches maybe don't think about it enough, maybe don't really recognise it in their lives, don't respond to this spiritual battle that we're in as God calls us to. I wonder if evangelicals might be in that second category. Have we dropped the supernatural? Have we unwittingly swallowed the Western Enlightenment materialist worldview? Have we forgotten that what Jesus did on the cross was win a victory over Satan in his death and resurrection? Have we forgotten that the Christian life is a spiritual battle against sin, against flesh, against the devil. Let's have a quick reminder, a quick skate over a few other passages in the Bible. This battle between Jesus and Satan that we've seen in Mark's gospel, it was decided on the cross. Jesus won the battle. Satan has been defeated, which might sound a bit confusing if we're still in the battle, but let's see what we can find out. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has won the victory. The power of the devil has been broken on the cross. And one day, when Jesus returns, bringing the new creation, the battle will be over forever. Satan will be gone forever. We hear it in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet but we're not quite there yet. The battle has been won, but while we wait, the fighting continues. It's a bit like test cricket. Hang in there if you don't like cricket. This isn't long or complicated, but a test series in cricket is often five test matches long. And the winner is the one who uh, wins at least three. 
So if in a particular series, one team wins the first three matches, they have won the series. They've gone up 3-0 in the series. But they still play the final two matches. A series looks really different if one team wins 5-0 or if they win 3-2. So they play out the last two test matches. Those matches still matter, even though the winner was already clear at the end of the first three tests. Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. We know he has won the battle. But the battle continues. The spiritual battle continues. It continues in our world. It continues in our lives. We don't live in neutral territory. So if this spiritual battle continues, how does it look? There's a lot of different ways that it looks. Let's have a look at a few. Firstly, it looks like the temptation to sin. Satan is the one who brought sin into the world as he tempted Eve. He is the one who still tempts us in different ways. Greed, idolatry, anger, pride, selfishness, impatience, sexual impurity, lust. Or others, what are your temptations? Whatever they are, ultimately Satan is their source. We hear it in 2 Corinthians 11. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan is still at work deceiving. The spiritual battle also looks like Satan seeking to bring trouble and conflict into Christian communities, into churches. In the context of Paul's turbulent relationship with the church in Corinth, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Forgiveness for each other is one of the gifts that God gives us as a Christian community so that Satan might not outwit us through division and conflict. The spiritual battle also looks like Satan bringing the fear of death into people's lives. We heard that already in Hebrews chapter 2. And this spiritual battle looks like Satan keeping people away from Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God, of this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's really sobering, isn't it? We are in the middle of a spiritual battle. But we don't need to be scared. As an Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, said a long time ago in the context of a national terror threat, be alert but not alarmed. Jesus has won this battle. We must never forget that, even as we acknowledge that Satan hasn't given up. We can be confident that God protects those who trust in Jesus. 2 Thessalonians, 3, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 gives us this encouragement. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. 
And finally, we need to keep reminding ourselves that God has given us what we need to stand firm in this battle now. 1 Peter chapter 5, be alert, there's John Howard's word, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That is not a nice image if you imagine it in your mind. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. That is what God calls us to. James chapter four, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is a beautiful promise. And in Ephesians 6, we see the fullest description in the New Testament of what God gives us to resist the work of Satan. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God. And Paul then helps us identify what the full armour of God is. He talks about the belt of truth. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the, th the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer in the spirit. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that we live in a spiritual battle? Do we see this battle clearly? Or have we been lulled by Satan into a false sense of security? The test might be the extent to which we use the means that God has given us to resist Satan's schemes. So I have a few questions for us. Are we together standing firm in our faith, resisting the devil's temptations and schemes in our lives? Do we daily put on the armour of God? Do we know the gospel of peace and truth? Do we read the Bible regularly? Do we let it shape who we are? Do we let God shape how we live through his word? Do we stand firm with faith in Jesus when questions and temptations seem overwhelming? There's nothing wrong with questions, but do we address them to help us stand firm in our faith? Do we live in the righteousness that God has given us in Christ? Are we confident in the salvation that Jesus has won for us on the cross? Do we pray persistently with all kinds of prayers and requests? There are lots of ways that we can pray. We have a St. Jude's prayer gathering once a month on a Monday evening. It's not just a nice time of getting together. This is one of the weapons that God gives us in the spiritual battle against Satan in our lives and in our world. So please come to St. Jude's prayer if you think we're in a spiritual battle. If we don't do these things, maybe it's because we don't really think we need to. We're articulate, we're independent, we're busy, we're used to thinking that we are in control of our lives. But if we really believe that we are troops in the battle, we would be wearing our spiritual armour. 
I have in my life a number of friends and family members who I love dearly who aren't Christians. Some of them I've been praying for for years on and off. Recently, I've been really challenged about my lack of prayerfulness for them. It's this verse in 2 Corinthians 4 that we've already read that has challenged me. It is Satan who is blinding the people that I love so that they can't see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I'm working harder than ever in my prayer for them. Seeing Jesus clearly helps us to see everything else clearly as well. It helps us to see the nations clearly, to be reminded that God loves them, that they need him, that we have a part in that. And it helps us to see the battle clearly, the battle for this little girl that Jesus fought, the battle that Jesus fought on the cross, the battle he continues to fight in our lives as we let him and the battle which, whose victory we will one day see when Jesus returns. A few years ago, I had an optometrist appointment that was different from every other appointment I'd ever had. The optometrist said to me, your eyes have improved. First time ever. I didn't believe them. I had to get them to say it again. And so after all these years and years and years of having a stable prescription, they needed to tweak my prescription so that I could see clearly again. Some of us have been Christians for years. Others of us may be new followers of Jesus. Maybe some of us aren't followers of Jesus. For all of us, seeing Jesus clearly gives us the only true way to see life and the world clearly. What needs tweaking today in the way that you see Jesus? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you want us to see Jesus clearly. We thank you so much for the Bible, for Mark's Gospel, where you show us who Jesus is. God, please stop Satan blinding the minds of us, blinding the minds of our loved ones. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to see your world clearly. Help us to use what you have given us in the battle against Satan. And we pray in Jesus' powerful and victorious name. Amen.